The following is a conversation with Dr. George Bill Gare. He is an accomplished poet, releasing seven published collections, the most recent being Blood Pages, released in 2018. Dr. Bill Gare's work has been described as dangerously clever and deceptively simple. He has won many awards and been invited to countless poetry readings, most notably, perhaps, at the Library of Congress. He is also a professor at John Carroll University, and I had the pleasure of taking a poetry workshop seminar with him the spring of my freshman year. I had not seen him since, and two years later, as we stepped into his office to record this conversation, he welcomed me like an old friend. As he sat back in his matching sweatsuit and gave us a smile, I knew we were in for a great conversation. Dr. Bill Gare is truly one of a kind, and in this episode, we will speak on the beauty of fatherhood, his lifetime career as a poet, and navigating life as an artist in the modern world. He is a man full of wisdom, and it was truly a pleasure to have him on our show. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Bilger, how are you? How are you feeling today? I'm good, Mike. How are you? It's so great to see you and Quinn and be part of the podcast. You say I'm the first person you're interviewing this year. Is that right? Yeah, 2021. You were the first first interview. What an honor. I mean, you had like 7 billion choices and you chose me, so... (laughs) <laughs> yes, you. me and Michael have both had classes with you, super interesting. I took, I think it was like poems and, pro- I don't even know the title of Something it. Something like that. It was, you know, and, and, and for, a, for a Zoom class, it was, it was pretty good. Pretty but, solid. I mean, Zooming is, is, I mean, this podcast will last for years, and people will look back on this year and say, oh, my God. For one thing, I'm wondering, people will tune into this, in a couple of years and immediately say, why do they sound kind of muffled? Mm-hmm, Is there something right. wrong with the mic? No, we're wearing masks, so yeah. everyone sounds like this now. We're not quite six feet apart. No, we're not quite, but <laughs> we've we got the mask. Oh, you yeah. got your first dose of the vaccine. I'm halfway there. Feeling I'm halfway right there, still? which is good. Yeah. Michael and I are heathens still because we're young and alive. You're yeah. immortal, you know, <laughs> seriously. I heard this great line. You know, I'm 69. I'm really getting up there. What a great age. It's a great age, but I heard this uh, I heard this great line the other day, which you will understand someday, but it's this. Um, the line, and I, I don't know who to attribute it to, but the line is, it's weird being the same age as old people. It's weird being the same age as old people. Because yeah. when you are that age, you, you know, you're, you're not an old person. It's those other people who are old people. You're a young person who just happens to have that age. It's just a very mm. surreal feeling. It's so true. I'm, yeah, I'm well, getting used to it. Yeah, I mean, people are saying, and the old adage phrase, or age is just a, a number, right? Yeah. I mean, you're still it, it, it's that young poet. The problem is it's a number, but once it gets big enough, you die. That's, <laughs> that's like the, that's like the yeah. real problem with that, that adage. Right, right. <laughs> now, uh, so do you, you don't feel your age though where would you rank yourself in terms of uh oh yeah i well i've been really lucky um i shouldn't say things like this during the virus but uh i've held together really well um and uh you still I, have hair so I, you're I still have i have hair. hair i still have you can't see it but i still have my teeth um i um you know i swim i run i ride my bike so uh so far every you know the main 
problems, you know, knees, hips, the whole structure breaking down. That hasn't happened yet. Now it will, and I'll be I'll be heading for the spare parts store. But thus far, all is good. Yeah. I can't complain. And I mean, you mentioned before the interview, I have this this self-professed claim. I, I, I'll admit I haven't done the research. I think I'm the world's oldest first-time uh, new dad. So I've got two kids, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And, yeah, man, chasing them around. It, it, as I say, chasing my kids around keeps me old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wake up and think, why am I so sore? But uh, So that's been great. Yeah. That's been great. I heartily recommend it. Okay. Maybe not, I mean, don't do it when you're 21. Okay. But, you know, give it a few years. Yeah, I, I actually kind of wanted to talk about that and how... How do you think your age as a father impacted your parenting style? Did it make you more patient or uh, um, understanding? Or Dr. yeah, Bell actually just beats his yeah. children. Yeah, it just whack. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm you know I'm irrationally violent and <laughs> insane. And right. no, uh, well, I'll tell you the the first way it affects it is, um, you know, my my best friend in college uh, got married when he was twenty two. Got married right out of college to a wonderful woman, and by the time he was 26, he had three kids. And I, at 26, was just a total kid, you know, basically goofing around, part-time jobs, traveling. And he's raising these kids, and he's raising it on a, a you know, sort of beginning journalist's salary. There's never any money. Uh, every month, you know, there's all this tension about, are we going to make the rent? Are we going to be able to f- afford groceries? And I, I didn't want to go through that. So uh, uh, one advantage to waiting until you're older is you, you have money. And you have a lot of experience. I mean, you have the time and you have the, I don't want to say wisdom. The, you have the, world, the worldly experience to sit back and watch your kids be kids and enjoy it. You know, rather than saying, I just don't have time to spend any time with you. I'm at work all day. And uh, when I get home, I just want to eat, watch TV for an hour, and go to sleep. I've got plenty of time with my kids, and, and it's, it's just a blast to watch them go through, you know, those slow processes. Sure. Like uh, my four-year-old, I've got this really funny, precocious old four-year-old. He went, came into the kitchen today, this morning, and he said, Daddy, I've got this idea for making a machine that would let you share dreams and I said, well, how would it work? And he said, well, first of all, you make two hats out of steel paper. Mm-hmm. Do you know what's... Can you guess what he means by steel paper? Tin foil. Aluminum foil. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> steel paper, that's, that's a much better term <laughs> than aluminum foil. Right. You know, wrap it in steel paper. You should re- remarket it. Yeah, as steel paper. Yeah. So make two hats of steel paper mm-hmm. and connect them with a wire, and you can send your dreams. Don't, uh, you know... Don't patent this. I mean, we we own the idea. But sure. your kid's going to be a scientist, basically. Basically, <laughs> but yeah, you 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 get to enjoy this yeah. as as it as it unfolds without the constant stress of wondering if you can afford it. Sure. So and it sounds like almost this childlike influence on you is this impacting your your writing? Well, I I made this vow to my poet friends when I had kids because I'd seen them go through it. And they're these, like, uh, you know, cutting-edge, tough, uh, hard, brilliant 
diamond-like minds courageously pushing the avant-garde in their career. And then suddenly they're writing what I call the beautiful diaper poems. Everything about my son is so beautiful, even his diapers. And I said, you know, you guys, this has just ruined you and turned you so sentimental. Not going to happen to me, man. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep my edge. Within a few months, I was writing. <laughs> I was writing the beautiful diaper poem. So, uh, yeah, you your kids occupy so much of your attention mm -hmm. and your imaginative life that, of course, you have to write about it. It would seem kind of crazy to be writing about, I don't know, the struggles in Afghanistan when your two kids are right there having a fight on the floor, and you know, there's this immediate overwhelming reality, and it's real. It, it's your life. So uh, I'm trying to kind of restrain myself and step sure. back from too is many your, kid poems. Is your wife a writer as well? No, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think it would be, don't you think it would be tough to be married to someone in exactly the same field? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you might start by saying, we're not going to be competitive, I'll always love you, but, you know, one person starts doing really well, and the other person is kind of... So, no, my wife is, uh, she, I, I, I met my wife at Stone Oven Bakery, she was a baker. All right. Yeah, I'd be sitting there, you know, having my coffee. I, I used to write there in the mornings years ago. And now and then this kind of flower-dusted woman would come up from the bakery and get something from behind the counter. And I watched, I observed, and then I struck. <laughs> and that was, you know, I asked the owner, so who's the, who's the baker? You could write a movie on this. Yeah, yeah. It, it was very. It was a very romantic meet, and I said, I, "Can you set me up somewhere with this baker?" And so, so I get really good bread at home. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I miss when I first met her, she always smelled of fresh bread. It was like intoxicating. You know what a loaf of freshly baked bread smells like? That like, no, doesn't smell that way anymore. It smells like a mom. <laughs> it's a good smell. So yeah. like lotion. It's, yeah, like lotion. Yeah. So uh, no, she she is not a poet uh, in in performance, but um, certainly in her life she is, and she's also my my best reader. Hmm. When I write something, the first person I show it to is Jody, and she has this exquisitely attuned like BS meter, like George, you know this is crap. I just hope I could get it past you, you know. But she's ruthless about saying, "Look, this is—I love this. This really works well. This part, not so much." She also sounds like a great mom if she has a—if she has a BS meter like that. Yeah, mom's yeah. The same way. The kids can't—kids can't put anything over on her. So. Last last night, my mom, she she calls this banter. So I told her when we win an Emmy, I'm gonna go up on the stage and say, "Mom." She doesn't listen to this, and she called it banter. Last night, go upstairs. She's watching her Netflix show, about to go to bed. And me and my brother, Matt, always pause when she comes down so yeah. we can talk to her. And she doesn't pause. She's like, I'm trying to watch this. And I'm like, Mom, we pause when you... She's like, leave me alone. And I was like, all right, Mom, good night. Banter is good. You've got to have banter. I mean, you guys have banter. That's why you have a podcast. Um, that's what, you know, I think maybe that's my... That's what I like most about life, banter. Mm. I've, you know, I've got a radio show on WJCU called Wordplay, and I do it with a guy, John Donahue, um, who I started doing the radio show, and it was just me, 
reading poems and, and doing interviews and, and doing kind of weird little funny audio bits. And I met John. I, I asked John. He's, he's a, he taught science at CSU, but he was a good poet. In fact, one of the best-known poets in the city who's published real books. And so I, I didn't know him well at all. And I said, let's, let's meet for coffee and let me record you doing a couple of your poems. I'll put them on my show. And it really went well, his recordings of the poems. And I said a few months later, let's do it again. And I noticed that the part, as I was listening to the tape again, as you guys will listen to this, I noticed the banter part was the part I liked listening to most. Like, I didn't want the banter to end, okay, now we got to do the poem. So we had this, like you guys have, you, either you have it with someone or you don't. You, oh, yeah. you can't fake it. And I had tried to do the show with other people, and it just was like a lead balloon. There was fake laughter, awkward moments where we couldn't think of anything to say. It just, the magic wasn't there. And with John, it's like this immediate, you you know, turn on the mic, and we will talk for 30 minutes, turn off the mic. And it's quick, and it's fun, and witty. Well, and Michael, I have to say this, because we've gotten in like the past four weeks, we uh, we have like this joke where I'm, Michael has two sisters, and we always talk about how I'm gonna marry one of them, and so that's always that's that's one of the best parts of banter mm. on our show. But I said if he marries his sister, then my sister, then I have to go after his mother because he doesn't have a sister. So it's well, I mean, if, would you be okay with that? <laughs> I mean, so it's all in the family. Right, exactly. exactly. Well, my brother saw his sister on one of the dating apps, his older sister, and, and Michael goes, I've accepted I'm going to live in a compound with the two Orloffs and my sister. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Yeah. No, but it's, it is a gift, the, the idea of banter. I've heard it called the gift of gab. Yeah, where, uh, the gift of gab. It's, it's, the, it's the gift of radio. Mm -hmm. I mean... Um, if you don't have banter, you don't have a radio show. And you know, they're just the whole history of radio with all those great talk teams, sports talk teams, and comedy teams, and um, you know, I, you guys are too too young probably to remember. Way too young, actually, because these guys were big even before I was born. That probably back in the '40s, a, a comedy duo called Bob and Ray. I'll send you a link to some of their bits because you would love them, and you would you would quote them on your show. But that was the first time I thought, you know, all they all they have to do is sit in the room. You don't need special effects, you don't need an orchestra, you don't need dancers. Just give us a couple of mics and turn them on and we got a show. And I, I, I love that, that magic that happens when the banter is working. And in the case of our show, John the show John and I have, it's structured around something. So, you know, we read a poem and then do a little bit about why did you like this poem? This is the funniest poem, or John, you picked that poem, but I actually didn't really care for it. And then you got some kind of banter going. So it's a cool thing, the world of banter. Yeah, I'll try to play this for my mom, and she'll be like, shut the banter off. <laughs> banter away. So uh, I think now would be a good time to just kind of get into your, your story. I know we talked about yeah. how... Being an older father, you have this wisdom, but I'd like to kind of get to the root of that wisdom. So could you tell us about growing up in California and what your childhood was like? Yeah, um, well, uh, my childhood was 
it was it was rather rocky at first. I was born in St. Louis. My parents had a disastrous marriage, resulting in divorce when I was eight. So my mom relocated us. She had been in World War II. She was a nurse in World War II. And after the war, she had this really tough assignment. She, she was stationed in Hawaii at a, at a hospital in Hawaii. So she spent a few years in Hawaii. And then on her way back into the States, she stopped in California to see a friend and fell in love with Southern California. So after the divorce, she moved us out to a, a charming little town surrounded by orange groves called Riverside, California, so an inland from L.A. And so I grew up with a, a single mom and a couple of sisters, and that, that really changes. Uh, the family dynamic grew really tight because there was no longer this disruptive, ongoing calamity of their, their struggles. And my mom had to kind of rise to the occasion. Um, she had to get a job. She had to take care of business. We kids had to grow up fast, you know, learn to cook, learn to take care of ourselves. So um, I think it taught me a, a kind of um, independence, and it also taught me from an early age a real distrust of the institution of marriage. I didn't, I seemed like everybody we knew was in a bad marriage. And so I just, you know, quietly thought, well, I don't think I'll do that. And so maybe that was one of the reasons uh, I stayed single for so long. But um, growing up in Cal Southern California was, um, it was, it's, it's a strange question. Actually, I've been asked a lot of questions. I've never been asked that question. How did growing up in California affect you? Here's the weird thing about California. Like, if you look at that picture right there on the wall, that David Hockney picture, that's what Southern California looked like. Okay. And... I had grown up in St. Louis, which by American standards is this old industrial city. Have you ever been there? No. Well, just plug Cleveland into your St. Louis <laughs> gap. It's the same thing. Industrial, brick, uh, uh, steel, uh, an old industrial city with a lot of history, um, including Civil War, slavery, St. Louis is just a, a, a magnificently, historically rich old city. Riverside, the neighborhood where we moved, outside of this little town, 10 years earlier, it had just been high desert. Ten year, the house had, was 10 years old, and it was on land that 10 years before had never been built on. In other words, it was, it was a place without history. It was a place without a story. And that... Um, it was kind of an arid place for a poet to grow up. You know, you would think, wow, if you grew up in London, how great. If you grew up in New Orleans, how great would that be? Growing up in Riverside, California, was like growing up in nowhere. But uh, I read a lot, and then this weird thing happened. Um, near our house, one of the early mega shopping malls was built. And it was like kind of like the announcement of a new kind of culture. Um, and I was one of the original kids to um, hang out at the mall, you know, go to the record store at the mall, go to the smoothie shop at the mall, look at the girls at the mall, stare at the mall. Um, 
and that, that that culture that you kind of see realized maybe in cartoon shows like uh, Beavis and Butthead, I started, that, that culture kind of originated in Southern California. And so that's kind of what I fell into, while at the same time as I was going to high school then college, I was getting really interested in classical literature, Renaissance literature. So on the one hand, I had this crazy new, brand new Southern California culture based, uh, based on no history, just something we invented because we didn't have anything else. And then things like skateboarding and surfing and stuff like that balanced against taking courses in Chaucer and Shakespeare and thinking I'm going to be an English major. So it was kind of a weird background. It was an unlikely background for a writer. Um, and, but it, and it also meant uh, I, I sort of took solace in reading. You know, I, re I retreated into books because I didn't know many people there. Like every good English major. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think English majors English majors are people who started out lonely, you know, and you turn to books for, for friendship, for companionship. So um, kind of like that. That was kind of the impact. And then I went to grad school. I went back to St. Louis to uh, Washington University. And I remember the it was incredible to get back to this city. In California, any building that's more than six months old gets torn down and turned into a smoothie shop. I mean, sure. there's, no, there's no history. Sure. St. Louis, it's, I mean, by American standards, it's ancient. And these beautiful old buildings and, uh, like, you know, if you've never been to a city like Cleveland, all the, the rotting infrastructure of the steel industry. St. Louis has the Mississippi River with the barges and the riverboats and that whole jazz culture. St. Louis feels a lot like New Orleans along the river there. So... I was just in heaven. I'd go down to those bars and honky-tonks and speakeasies along the river and just soak it up. And that was when my poetic career really, really got going. I was in a, an early uh, writing program at Washington University, and I was taking workshops and, you know, sitting there writing out my poems and dreaming about becoming a writer. And so it all got started, really, in, in my mid-20s when I went back to St. Louis. You guys should go there sometime. Yeah. Really, it's a it's a wonderful city to explore. Are you a Cardinals fan, then? Uh, I was then, and I am now. I mean, I, please don't I don't mean to offend any Indians, fans, oh. but I have to I have to remain true to my cards. When I see that, you know, you're flipping through the TV and you you land on a TV game, and the the pitcher is standing there, and across his chest is that baseball bat with the two little birds sitting on it, the, the Cardinals. I am instantly six years old again, just for a flash. It's like because I had, of course, I had that T-shirt, and I had that cap. And they wore powder blue back then, and they brought them back now. Yeah, how could you not like? Them? I love that. They didn't have to go through this whole mess we've gone through with Wahoo and the tribe mm -hmm. and all that. I mean, no one Cardinals doesn't offend anybody. No, everyone likes Cardinals. <laughs> sure. Now, I wanna. I just wanna jump forward real quick. How did you end up in Cleveland at John Carroll, and then we can go back? But yeah, anywhere. Um, so I got my. Uh, I got a, a PhD at another school. I went to the University of Denver, <clears throat> and got a doctorate. And my first job out of grad school in my thirties 
was uh, I went on the job market and I got offered a job at uh, University of Oklahoma in Norman. And uh, this it's a mega university, like 40,000 enrollment. Is it in the middle of nowhere? It's not quite, uh, but kind of. Much, many people would say Oklahoma is nowhere. Uh, but it's a funny thing. Um, it's, yeah, when I was in Norman, it was really, the population of the town was 50,000. The enrollment of the school was 40,000 students. So there's this huge school at the edge of this really charming little town. It was like, uh, you know, Mayberry. Um, and I came to really love Norman. I, in many ways, I love living there more than anywhere I've ever lived. It was so small. The people were so friendly. Um, but I was kind of chafing at the size of the school. Like I had my classes had sixty people, and so you stood on a lectern and kind of talked to this sea of faces. It was impossible to have any kind of real discussion. Or, so I went on, jo on the job market, and I saw a lot of jobs that looked interesting. But when I came out here, they were just kind of building up the creative writing program. So they were hiring people, poets and fiction writers. And it just, and it felt just like St. Louis. It felt like a good fit for me. I, I wanted to be at a small school, not a giant, you know. I mean, Oklahoma, OU was basically there for the football team. And uh, I just never quite clicked with the place. I mean, the English department had 50 people. Can you imagine, 50 people, I didn't know. I mean, after two years, I didn't know half the people in the department. It's just the sheer size overwhelmed me. Like I would, I would feel that way if I went to OSU. Just too, you know, you're you're just lost in that sea. You're just a number. You're just a number. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You never emerge into into anything. So I came here and I was immediately happy. And I thought uh, my thoughts back in those days were, you know, I'd just be this kind of roving professor, but I never left here. Um, I stuck, you know, I've, I've been here for an, an unbelievable 30 years. Wow. Just by far my longest gig anywhere. Mm -hmm. so. We started in, was it 92 did you start at John 91. 91. 91, okay. 91 was the first year. Yeah. And then three years later, you published your first work? Three years later, I published my first book. Um, this one. He's going to find it everywhere. Oh, here it is. It just happened to be right here. It's called The Going. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was a, that was a big uh, thrill for me to, yeah. to have published a book. And um, then three or four years after that came another book. And ever since then, it's been about every four years uh, a, book has, mm -hmm. a book has come out. So. Is there a reason why it's four years, that cycle? Or? I, I, don't, I couldn't quite explain it, but that seems like what it takes. Like, I know, of, I know of poets who publish a new book each year, and I find that, I, I don't like that idea. I like the idea that enough time has passed that you are, to some degree, a slightly different person. You know, you're not quite the person at uh, 52, um, than you are at 56. You know, you've you've had some life experience and that you've done things and things have happened and maybe your um, your control over your art has grown. Um, so four years seems uh, after my usual writing process, 
after about four years, I think, hey, I've got enough poems here that could make a book. And, and fortunately, uh, presses have, have picked it up. So, But it's interesting, yeah. I mean, I've never really studied that with other writers. I know writers who have so many more books than I do, but um, that's never been the goal. Not a lot of books, just good books. Mm -hmm. so. And was this first publication, because you published it when you were about 43 years old, right? Yeah, I was in my early, mid-40s. Right, so, I mean, it's a, you know, a little late. Uh, is this a culmination of everything you've written up no, to this point? No, no, it's, um, anyone who's listening to this podcast and is in the, in the literary world or in the, maybe in the university world, you know, it, that, it sounds like, yeah, that's a little late to publish your first book. But back then, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Today, it, like if you want to get a job in a university, uh, you went into a, you know for an interview in your forties and you didn't have a book, they would look really look askance at you. Mm -hmm. um, you know the pressure is on, and you better try to get a book when you're in your twenties and get another one in your thirties. Uh, in that time, there wasn't this kind of um, careerism, like we're, we're hiring you because of the book. And there wasn't, uh, I didn't feel any pressure. No, no one at that time was saying, hmm, you turned 40 and you don't have a book. It was, I think it was more like the norm. You'd reach your late 30s, around 40, and like you said, Michael, it was kind of a culmination. Okay, now I'm ready. And I know any number of writers now, you know, a lot younger than me, like in their 40s, who published books in their early 20s or mid-20s with tiny little presses, but who really came to regret it. Like, oh my God, I look at that book and it's such a piece of crap. You just don't want to publish anything when you're 25. You're, you're, not, you're not ready. And I look at this book, The Going, from 95, and I'm really proud of it. You know, I, there, I don't look at it with embarrassment, as I would have, I mean, I look at things I wrote it. 25 or 30, and I was just, I would be dying. I would buy them all up and have them burned. So it's, it's changed a yeah. lot. Uh, the, whole, the whole literary world has changed a lot in, in many respects, as you can guess, because of the whole, the whole digital revolution and mm -hmm. online publishing and all these millions of little presses. Hey, we'll publish your book online. And uh, so there's been a real, there's been a huge watering down um, and it's very hard to kind of figure out, like, what is good now? Sure. In the past, there were all these, like, official gatekeepers, you know. Well, if you want to publish a collection of poems, there are only 12 places to go, and they're all pretty good, and your work has to... And now it's... it's Isn't that, isn't that kind of nice, though? Like, I think from the English student perspective at the moment, and looking at it from an art lens, because yeah. the 12 places you could publish something and someone would be like, oh, I hate this, this is horrible, yeah. it relates nothing to me, and then like, I, I'm gonna take, I, I'm in a, in a class right now, and the teacher was like, on a poem, he's like, oh, that was wrong, and I'm like, I was it wrong? I provided evidence. Like I didn't like it just because you like it. Like we can agree to disagree. Yeah, that's right. But well, look, the whole what has happened in the in the digital world um, 
is amazing. It's astounding. It's incredible. In many ways, I don't like it. In many ways, it's it's made my career. I mean, when I started, like when I, I got to Cleveland, and in the 90s, you know, you're, you're doing those early readings, those early public readings of your work. And some bookstore, a local bookstore, would invite me to read or a coffee shop or something. And, you know, you show up for the reading, and there are like uh, 10 people there and, and a coffee maker buzzing in the background and a, maybe a therapy dog or something. <laughs> and you think, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's fine. That's about standard. When I did my reading at the library last week, there were 11 people. So this is the world of poetry. It's small. Only a handful of people are interested in it. And you think, well, you know, it's not exactly Hollywood, but this is how it works. But uh, the weird, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I don't know, you know, we're bouncing all around, but I'll tell you my my sort of creation myth as a more public figure, as a poet. So I published two books, and the first book, this one, was a really nice book. It won some little prizes, but nobody heard of it and nobody read it, right? Which happens with almost all books of poetry. Um, and then I had another book in around 1999 called Big Bang, and it was a lovely little book, and many people said nice things to me, but nobody really read it. It just suffered the fate of most poetry books. A couple of people reviewed it. It got stuck on a shelf in the library, and everyone forgot about it. Uh, but I, I'm being a productive university member. So here's, I think, maybe the, the meat of this discussion we're having, because this, this was an extraordinary thing that happened to me. And I wonder if most writers, artists, go through something like this. But... I, um, I got married, uh, not to my present wife, in the late 90s, and it was a disaster. I mean, it was just a bad choice, and both of us knew it, and we kind of battled it out for a few years. It just wasn't working, and uh, she was a wonderful person, um, but the characters, the personalities just clashed and uh, we got divorced in the and the divorce was happening in the summer of 2000 and I was teaching here at John Carroll and um, it was really devastating for me it was it was an emotionally devastating experience it was such a huge sense of failure and sorrow and grief and worse worse still it happens right when summer vacation begins. And I'm, I'm not teaching summer school. I have nothing going on for the summer. So you're just faced with this blankness and, well, the divorce is, is happening. So I, I went out to um, California where I have a wonderful sister who lives in this little tourist town of Santa Cruz. And uh, she and her husband they had a couple of kids and they have a nice big house. And I stayed with them for the summer. And I thought, okay, here I am in the summer with my sister. I love my sister, and I love her kids, but what am I going to do? I'm grieving, I'm bewildered, I'm depressed, and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to write about this, this experience, and I'm going, to encounter, I'm going to confront it in my writing, and I am going to take writing seriously 
in a way that I have never done. I never really committed myself to it as one should. It was always, you know, I'm kind of doing academic stuff, I'm kind of doing writing, I'm kind of having fun with friends. But I, it had never been a completely serious commitment until that summer. And I wrote, uh, I did something that I had never done before. I would write at cafes. I'd go to downtown Santa Cruz, and I'd write in one cafe in the morning, and then go to this little gym and work out and have lunch. And then I'd go to a different cafe, and I would write in the afternoon. And every week, I would do that five days a week, and I would have ten drafts of poems. It was very mechanical, very formal. Ten poems a week, forty poems a month. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was that total commitment to poetry. There was writing in a cafe, which I found I really liked. It was so much more fun than sitting in a library or in, your, in an office like this. And then the other thing that happened, right before I left Cleveland to go to California, Somebody gave me a book, and I think we used it in a very, one, one of this guy's books in both of the classes I've had with you guys. Somebody gave me a book, again, this was 2000, by a writer named Tony Hoagland. And uh, the book was called Donkey Gospel. And I had never even heard of the guy. And uh, I started reading the book when I would go to the guy. I'd sit down at the cafes, and I'd start by reading a couple of his poems. And... His poems were, he had this ability, he was doing this thing that I hadn't seen before. His poems were very serious, but they were also wildly funny in the same poem. That's like I was thinking, at first I was irritated by it, like, let's get serious here, take this seriously, but that is pretty damn funny, I have to admit. Or, this poem is hysterical, or... Uh, so what he did was give me permission to be funny in a poem. I had never, my, my mentors, my teachers, you know, poetry is serious. This is not a place for laughing, for, for laughter, for goofing around. Hoagland was subversive and weirdly humorous, and um, no subject was safe from his wit, his satire. And it wasn't that I wanted to admit uh, to imitate the way he wrote, I wanted to imitate, um, I wanted, I wanted it to be okay for me to also be funny in my poetry. It's like, I was a pretty funny guy, you know, in sitting at a bar chatting, but I wouldn't allow that to go into my poems. And as soon as I allowed that kind of subversive humor, uh, I discovered my, my grown-up voice as a writer. Everything changed, and all of the poems, so I wrote all those poems that summer, right? And I continued to tinker with the book. I had like 120 poems, and I was taking the best of them and sending them to the journals, and a lot of journals were taking them. I'd never had so much success in the journals. And around uh, January, I thought, I've got to really, I, I whittled it down to about 35 poems. I said, this is a really pretty solid book. So I submitted it to a contest uh, through the University of Akron called the University of Akron Poetry Prize. And I found out later that the judge of the prize was the U.S. Poet Laureate, Billy Collins. And so, you know, I thought, well, probably they'll get 800 entries and 
at least I submitted it, and I'm happy with the book. So that summer, I'm in Santa Cruz, sitting in the TV room with my two little nephews, who are like four and six, and we're watching Adam Sandler, The Water Boy, this really goofy, stupid movie. Classic movie, yeah. Yeah, classic film. And the phone rings, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon, and I pick it up, and this guy says, Hi, is uh, George there? George Bilger. And I said, Yeah, this is George. And he said, Hi, George, this is Billy Collins, Poet Laureate of the United States. <laughs> the kids, Adam Sandler is making farting noises on the TV, and I could turn down the TV. Tell the kids to turn the TV down. And I had this great talk with Billy Collins, who um, had loved the book, was crazy about the book, and had picked it to win this contest. And then he, he and I kind of hit it off. And I ended up winning this kind of fellowship called the Witterbinner Fellowship that had me going to Washington, D.C. and reading with him at the Library of Congress. So it's like I went from completely obscure as a writer, as most poets are. As I put it, I went from being completely obscure to being only partly obscure <laughs> overnight. Sure. And that connection with Billy Collins was sort of my entree into a much larger world of literature and exposure to literature. And things sort of took off from there. And through Collins, I met, do you guys know or remember of Garrison Keillor, Prairie Home Companion? Do you know that show? Mm -hmm. Sounds very familiar. For your time. Yeah, a little bit. It was, uh, you would really have liked the concept, but it was on NPR, and it was on for like 35 years, every Saturday night. It was a combination of humor, sketches, song, guitar playing, poetry, um, and Keeler, Keeler ran this thing for, like I say, over 35 years. And he also had something you can still get as a, as a podcast, but it was on NPR. He had a daily radio show, lasted five minutes, called The Writer's Almanac. So you'd be driving to work listening to NPR, and the show would come on, only five minutes long, and Keeler would begin by saying, on this day in history, uh, the Wright brothers took their historic flight, and Emily Dickinson was born, and uh, blah, blah, blah. It was this kind of charming historical roundup of fascinating little factoids, and then he'd end it by reading a poem by someone. And this show went out to, there were, it was on 300 NPR affiliates around the country, so around five or six million people heard the show every morning as they drove to work or sat at the kitchen drinking their coffee. And so I was introduced to Keeler, and he liked this. I had just published this book called Haywire, and he started reading poems from Haywire on NPR, and it was like unbelievable. Because you go, I told you about the bookstore audience of 10 people and the dog. Suddenly you've got five million people and uh, so this is a roundabout way of going back to saying what happened with the digital world and, and the world of poetry. Yeah, it transformed my career and lots of poets who had tiny little audiences suddenly found themselves with national audiences thanks to you could, you could get the Writer's Almanac uh, delivered to your computer, to your email every morning. And suddenly, we, we, we 
practitioners of a of a small craft like poetry, suddenly we could have a national audience, and that that had never happened before. And that had to feel like some sort of validation, right? I mean, did you have family members calling you like George? You well, you made it. You finally. Yeah, it. sure. It, it was uh, when being on Prairie Home Companion, being on the show. Um, that was listened to by like eight million people, and you're it's a live audience of fifteen hundred people, and so you never dream of anything like this happening. Um, as for the Writer's Almanac, the daily NPR show, you would Keeler would read the poem, and it would be broadcast at various times throughout the day all over the country. And I'd come home and I'd turn on the computer. I mean, I couldn't wait to see it because I'm such a little egotist. But uh, I have a, a website, of course, and. George Bilger, and here's my email. And you'd come home, and there would be 20, 30, 35, 40 emails from people around the country saying, oh, I loved your poem about your dog today. And it was, yeah, it was, for the first time, poets had an audience, and, and people were listening to poets. And I, I, I came along a little bit late for the whole thing. Billy Collins had the great ride. He came along just in time. U.S. Poet Laureate, and got all this in incredible, incredible accolades. Um, but but I I've, I've done pretty well at it. So sure. it's it's been a, it's been a real thrill, and it would not have been possible for this to happen in the 1980s. And do you think um, so? When you're writing poetry in Santa Cruz and making it acceptable to put humor in your in your work. Um, do you think that affected your teaching style? Because I know from your class last semester, yeah. I know it was the first time I really found the way like I write stylistically. And like I remember we did poems like the first half class, then we did prose, and like I did my first prose, and you're like, you're a prose writer, Quinn. Like, yeah. do you? Well, see, Quinn, I th I think about that a lot because um, guys like writers like you, you're you know. I, I saw your talent as a poet, but I knew that wasn't your form. I mean, I, I knew that's not, that wasn't best suited to your voice. So when we started writing those essays and those fiction pieces, and you were writing those insane, over-the-top things, you know, there wasn't exactly, writing programs didn't exactly have a place for people like you back in the 90s. <laughs> you know, it was, it was so serious and so kind of formal and rigorous that your, um, your kind of rolling, rollicking, crazy sentences, frequent F-bombs, all of that stuff, it, it, people would have been saying, I don't really want you doing this. Uh, look, at, look at this work by novelist so-and-so, and let's see if you can be a little more formal, mature-sounding in your work. So, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, not, o not only with me, but with lots of writers. Like, if you study... Uh, English and American literature early in the 20th century, you know, 100 years ago, you had these big figures like T.S. Eliot, William Butler Yeats, Ezra Pound, and they were big modernist figures and they were serious. I mean, there is no laughing in Yeats. There is no laughing in T.S. Eliot. Beginning of the 20th century, you have poets like Billy Collins and Tony Hoagland and and people uh, lesser known people like me, 
but we, we are all kind of approaching culture with, in a way that you would understand through your writing, um, with a sense that, um, yeah, there is a place for high seriousness. <clears throat> and there's also a place for really pretty coarse, crazy, funny, sexy writing. And there's also a middle ground. And it's like such a much more exciting time to be a writer. I mean, there would have been no place for you in 1920. You would, you would have been selling shoes, you know? <laughs> so in today's world of fiction um, and poetry, uh, it's just wide open. And uh, it's, it, it's great fun. You know, the, I feel like the 20th century opened with a funeral. <clears throat> the 21st century opened with a big party with lots of champagne and music, and it's been, it's been great. And so, do you credit the trip back to California as yeah. part of the reason why you were able to get in touch with these almost childlike, whimsical roots that you... Yeah, I, 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 it, was a, it was like a time of, if, you know, it was my, my creation myth happened the summer of 2000, the summer I got divorced. I had all this time to examine myself consider my blunders, my stupid mistakes, my blindnesses, my selfishness, um, and my my failure to take anything seriously. You know, I was like, you know, you're, you're not a kid, and you've never really committed yourself to your writing, to a marriage. You've just kind of drifted through life, and you've developed these bad habits, and it's about time you took something seriously. And that encounter with myself that summer, it just changed everything. I, I emerged from that summer, and I don't really believe in the kind of new-agey, transformative experience. And yet, I, I had one. I was a different person at the end of that summer than I was at the beginning. And it changed my, my whole career. Uh, it, it gave me a career as a writer, and it made it possible for me then to think, okay, I think I'll, I'll be ready to actually get married, take it seriously, even have kids. It all came out of that, that, uh, that one summer in which I had to figure out something to fill the void, you know, and I filled the void by confronting myself. So, and I'm not saying I went into that summer a flawed person and I came out a superman. By no means. I came out still a highly flawed person. But I knew, I felt like I knew what I wanted. And I knew, I knew how to do it. You know, this is the biggest cliche in writing, but it's only a cliche because it's true. You, you work to find your voice. You know, how am I going to sound as a writer? And I don't think I knew until that summer. I was still, I'd still sort of adopt this pose, you know, as a writer. I'm, like, I'm this serious sort of prophetic figure in my writing, but I never felt that hat quite fit so after that summer all, all the work the, the, poem, the book that I, that I published that Collins picked was called The Good Kiss and that was my third book and the two before that I basically just forgot about I mean I never read from them I never look at them they're, they're there but my career started with the third book and I'll bet I, I don't have the data mm -hmm. but I'll bet that's true of so many novelists, writers, you know, I had to write two novels to become a novelist, and I wrote my third novel, it was 
mature work. You've you got to kind of go through that process, I think. Same thing with movies. You look at, uh, what's his face? The dude who did Pulp Fiction. Oh, well, yeah. Tarantino, and you look at you look at his first movie, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I don't know. And then you watch everything else after that, and you're like, yeah, oh, this is this is who we know. You see in Reservoir Dogs the, the beginnings of it, mm -hmm. but he's, he doesn't quite have a handle on what he's doing yet, you know. And you're you're right. Uh, I can't remember. Was Pulp Fiction the third his third film? I think so. Maybe so, but yeah, he had. You have to have that apprenticeship, and you think, okay, I'm learning my craft, learning my trade, and uh, it takes a long time. That's why I'm I'm kind of, um, you know, there's so many MFA programs out there, and I think one of the one of the kind of bogus promises they make is get an MFA and start publishing right away and it doesn't really work that way. You can get an MFA and then begin the process. <laughs> but, you know, it's not just, well, I've, I'm 26 years old with an MFA, I guess I'll start writing world-changing novels. But, sure. but you do start publishing stuff and you do start making your way toward that mature career, but it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, and it sounds like it almost took you to, I like that how you put it, where you really never were serious about yeah. poetry, but you, you treated it like a full-time job. I mean, you, you were working, you know, it sounds like eight hours a day writing, working on your craft. Do you still do that today? I still do it, but in, in different ways. I, I can't do it during the school term. I can't do it while I'm teaching and I have kids. But um, okay, we're we're I think we're really fortunate. We have we have enough money and we have enough time that I, I can take the summers off. And in addition to that, and this is the kind of over the top part of our lives, we always go to Berlin, Germany in the summers. Uh, for the whole three months. We rent a flat. And, uh, you know, we save up throughout the school year. Um, as soon as I'm out, you know, as soon as school ends here, June 1st, we're in Berlin. And we're there till the end of August. And I, I don't know if either one of you has been there, but you got to go to Berlin. And if you went Why there, Berlin? Well, I had gone to Europe many times, like especially England. And I love London and all the creative vibe of London. So... My wife and I, first of all, we saw a movie that I'd really recommend to both of you guys. Uh, it's called, in English, it's called The Lives of Others. The Lives of Others. And uh, I saw it at the Cedar Lee Theater like 10 years ago or something. It's in German. And it, it ended up winning like the, the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. And it's, it's set in Stasi, Germany. You know, when uh, there were the, the, in Stasi, Berlin, when there was this secret police spying on the citizens to make sure they towed the party line. And it was estimated, I mean, I think the film is set probably in the, in the 70s. It's estimated that one out of five people, one out of five adults, were in the Stasi at, the, at its height. So the, the three of us sitting here, if, if we were sitting here in East Berlin in 1975, both of you guys would be on your guard, wondering if I was watching you, taking notes, looking for 
signs of suspicious behavior, and I would be nervous about you. And that's how the whole culture was. I mean, it was awful, twisted, you know. The Berlin Wall was up and everything. Um, so, 1980, the, there's this very repressive, weird culture there. 1988, 89, 89, I guess, the wall comes down, and everybody gets the hell out of East Berlin. They just flood out of it. And into the vacuum, all these hideous, ugly Soviet Berlin, Soviet-style apartment buildings and stuff, into the vacuum floods um, students, artists, musicians, poets, generally, you know, kind of vagabond, hippy-trippy world travelers. And they, a lot of them literally squat in these buildings. No plumbing, no power. Build little coal, coal fires, haul, uh, you know, pails of water up to their room. And out of this comes this new culture, kind of like what happened in um, Paris and London after World War I, where all of those disenfranchised young people gathered to kind of reframe culture, you know, the lost generation. Uh, Berlin became like that, and um, that became its spirit. Like, we're, we're starting a new culture here. We're young, and we're smart, and we're, you know, people like David Bowie came there and, and sort of transformed parts of the musical scene. And that spirit still continues in Berlin. It's the most dynamic, exciting city. And I'm not young to be, it's ideally, you, you're young in Berlin, but it's a city filled with art and artists and uh, a kind of anything goes vibe. It's just a great place to spend the summer writing. And we have bikes there, with bike seats, and we take the kids to the park and have picnics and we go swimming and go to the, I, I do a lot of beer drinking there at the beer gardens. And, you know, you would love it. You would really find it an incredibly liberating culture. And um, so many writers and so many, you know, like in our little neighborhood, you go walking down the street and there's a, a room in an abandoned warehouse. And uh, there'll be a sign up saying, um, film premiere tonight. So some indie filmmaker, like, like you or like you, has finished his film. And you've gotten together about 50 uh, folding chairs and a projector, and you bought a bunch of cheap wine and uh, cheese cubes, and you're hosting your premiere. And, you know, all your friends come, and uh, stuff like that happens all the time there. Um, here, you wouldn't be able to get a permit to do it, and you couldn't serve wine, and you, you know, this is a very rule-bound culture. But Berlin continues to have that incredible vibe. So if, if, if I were traveling to Europe, if I were, were you, that's where I'd head. Um, and it continues to be, in parts, really cheap compared to the rest of Europe. So when I go to Berlin, I am there to write. Mm. And I write uh, every morning from 9, I'm, I'm working from 9 until 2, and then we can go off. And Do you handwrite your poems? Yeah, I do. In fact, I was just thinking this. Um, starting that summer in 2000, I, I started I started doing all my writing in books like this. this. These are called these artist sketch pads. You get them at art supply stores, and they 
they end up looking like that. Yeah, really nice handwriting. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, Quinn. Um, and I, I, I love, I hate writing on a computer. Oh, the worst. I like opening this up and seeing a big sheet of blank paper, and I write with gel pens. I love those gel pens. It's so smooth. Mm -hmm. um, I see you're like a normal English person and have written stuff on the cardboard on the back. Yeah, and, and it, the, the notebook, one of these lasts about one summer. Okay. So it ends up being covered with all kinds of notes or you know, film opening tonight, or write a poem about Jane Fonda, it says. I don't know, <laughs> right. I don't know what happened to that. Um, so each one of these becomes kind of a, a record of that, that summer of my life. And so every four years, you find yourself taking well, those? No. We're at an hour, just an hour. Oh, hour. Is that, okay, that's good. Like, yeah, that was quick. Which was fine, we can keep going. We yeah. just both have class at 3.30. Yeah, I'm going to have to go, too. I've got to go sure. do a, I've got to do a dreaded Zoom meeting with uh -oh. a group. It's like 3.15, like nine more minutes? Is that yeah, fine? Yeah, that's, cool. that's good. Um, no, I, I write the poems in the notebook throughout the week. And then on the weekend, I sit down at the computer and... Again, if I'm if it's in Berlin, uh, which it usually is, I go to a cafe Saturday morning, and I type out the poems that I've written. There will probably be ten drafts, and I just type them out and make little changes as I go through them. But I keep a file, you know. It will say Berlin, 2018, Berlin 2019. Is that how you figure out your line breaks in your poems? Because I imagine in the sketch pad, you're like you're just writing them down. Oh, I, I think of I think of them as lines. Okay. And if I go back and look at a poem that has since been published, usually the poem, the poem that is going to be published, the poem that comes out pretty well, doesn't undergo a lot of changes. But I'm I'm thinking of, I'm I'm thinking of each line as I write it. So I'm not like writing it out as a prose thing and then rearranging it into into lines. And then so you know that weekend I have. 10 poems, and I might think, if I'm lucky, I might think one or two of those has some potential. But then at the end of the summer, I'll sort of go through the whole thing and decide which ones <clears throat> I'm going to send out to journals. Mm -hmm. And then that process begins. And like I say, around four years into it, I've published enough of them uh, that I start thinking, this this could could work as a as a book, and I've got I've got a manuscript out right now, right. and I should hear from the press in May. So ideally, uh, the book would come out in January, the next book. Excellent. And the timing has worked out for me because I I've I've got some some friends, Phil Metris, the other poet in the department. They had books come out this year, which was like the kiss of death because the bookstores were closed mm -hmm. for a long time, completely, then opened up on a limited basis. There were no poetry readings. Nobody went anywhere to read their poems at a university or a college or a library. So if you had the bad fortune to have a book come out this year, I, I feel for these guys because, you know, there's just there was just no market for it this year. So... I'm hoping everything will be lined up with the virus by next January. I think I think we'll be okay. Do you have a title? Do you already like have a title in mind or how? I have. I, I have it. I gave the manuscript a title, 
I have another one in mind, but the title could be uh, a book in the poem about my about taking uh, walks in the summer with my wife and noticing that our our neighbors have have uh, central air. You know, the, their windows are always closed, and the big machine by the side of the house is always humming, and so they never hear. They never hear the crickets at night. They never hear the cicadas. They don't kind of experience that humid summer air. They're, it's like living in a, the freezer section of a supermarket. And so the, I wrote a poem, kind of a funny poem, about that. It's, in a larger sense, it's just like being insulated from the world around you. And the poem, so I, I use that tentatively for the book, but it might be called Central Air. Awesome. Which I like as a title. That is yeah. a kind of a cool quality. Um, and there's another poem in the book that just works at a lot of levels that I might use. Uh, it's a poem called Polar Bear. So calling the book Polar Bear would be nice. But Central, Central Air. Central has, Air with a Polar Bear. Central Air with a Polar Bear. So sure. we'll, we'll see. Um, doctor, before we wrap things up, yes. uh, I would like to hear your your words of wisdom and advice to our our college-age listeners who are, you know, young, adventurous, creative individuals oh God, uh, yeah. who are just trying to find their way and find their path and, you know, make, make a way for themselves in life. Uh, do you have any advice that you would give to them or even that you would have given yeah. to your 20-year-old self? Yeah, wow, that's, that's a tough question. I think, um, well, the thing is, I didn't know this consciously, but I knew it instinctively when I was 21, 22, 23. Um, I knew I wasn't ready to commit myself to a, a career or a marriage. And I, I, I did not want that, and I didn't do that. Um, I wanted to keep my options open. I wanted to see the world, and I wanted, I wanted a chance to date some interesting women and get to know the world that way, too. So um, that was crucial to me to defer those big, you know, like at the end of the year, seniors that I've had for four years, I, I sort of ask them to come in and we kind of do an exit interview. And they come in and when they say, I'll say something like, so, so okay, Tom, what's, what's up after graduation? And they'll say, well, um, Carla and I are getting married in June. And I'm joining uh, my dad's law firm. Yuck! And I and I, of course, I have to say, oh my God, that's so great! I'm so happy for you. What I'm thinking is, are you out of <laughs> your mind? Why are you doing this now? Do it when you're 31. You'll hang yourself in about three months, mate. Don't do it. Yes, don't don't do it now. And so my advice is, do some traveling. Do some crazy stuff. You know, go to. Go to Europe and find a part-time job. Go to Asia and find a part-time job. Get out of town, get out of Ohio, and do some crazy things. Um, and then worry about being a grown-up much later. Um, maybe never become a grown-up. That might be my, my best words of advice. So, yeah, I, you know, I hate those people who, from the time they were like 12, well, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And then they take all the biology classes, and then they go to med school, and they actually become a neurosurgeon when they're like 28, and they've never done anything else, and they will be a neurosurgeon. And I just never was able to have that big, that big plan. There were too many, 
opportunities taking me out into the world. So I, I, I lived and taught in Japan, um, and I worked in Japanese uh, educational television, and I've lived in England, and I've lived in Spain, lived in many places around the U.S. Uh, I think if you want to be a writer, you have to be open to, to that. You have to have something to write about, right? Um, ironically, the, the worst job for a writer, I think, is being uh, a teacher. Because, I mean, I, th I think if, if, like, if I were a fiction writer or a film uh, screenplay writer, I would think, you know, it might be one of the best jobs, um, cop or uh, working like in an emergency room or, a, or a, an EMT, you would have stories mm -hmm. like, I don't, nothing interesting ever happens here. <laughs> I mean, you know, no one comes in here dying from a car wreck or having just been shot in a bank robbery. Um, but man, if you have a job like that, those, those guys have stories like you wouldn't believe. So I don't know if that's very wise, but it's keep, keep your options open for as long as you can. You know, your you, your life expectancy by now is about ninety. Mm -hmm. It's not like True I've got to get married when I'm twenty one, and I've got to have at least three kids by the time I'm twenty six, and I've got to be a partner at Deloitte and Touche when I'm twenty eight. I don't worry about it. So that's perfect. These are my words, guys. Thank you. Oh, this was fun.